Bass from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Hi, everybody. My name is Susie, and I am a grateful and enthusiastic member of Al-Anon. Hi, Susie. Boy, we do have fun, don't we? We have a lot of fun. And, and one of the things that I really love about our program through the years, we have we've learned to laugh more and more and more. And for years, I couldn't laugh, and now I laugh at so many things. I can see the humor in everything. Uh, before I go any further, I want to uh, thank the committee for having me come here. Uh, it's always a privilege. I want you to know this is the most important thing I do in life. Absolutely, this is the top of the heap. This is Broadway for this girl. You know, uh, I love this program with a passion. Uh, this program has done so much for me. Uh, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you all the things that I'm grateful for. I find I'm getting emotional already. Uh, I hope that's not, I hope that's gonna uh, subside because, you know, I really have a lot I want to tell you. Uh, <clears throat> I have loved the speakers. Every one of you have been really, really inspirational. I've loved the message. I've gotten a lot out of it. This has been a real dynamite weekend. So for, for those of you who've put it together, thank you. <clears throat> Uh, I, too, uh, looked at the theme for the weekend, and uh, I'm going to tell you what my first impressions were. Quiet your mind? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? You know, alcoholics have a, a drinking problem, and it's a prerequisite for us. You have to have a thinking problem to come here. And, and I certainly did have a thinking problem for many, many years. And even today, after all these years in program, I had a rough period of two or three hours, um, and I'm going to share that with you. What happened was this morning, uh, I did something that I rarely do. I had a second cup of coffee, and this was a very strong cup of coffee, and I thought, well, you know, this will help me perk up a little bit. And I want to tell you, I went about five planets past perky. <laughs> And uh, I'm hypoglycemic, and, and boy, my mind was spinning, and I, I spent a couple of really rough hours. But the difference with me today is no matter what's going on with me, when, when things are out of whack and I feel that light go on the, the dashboard of my car, that red light that lets me know trouble, trouble, you need to check this out, I have a set of tools that I can use. The very first thing I did was I prayed, and I, I, I prayed for everything now. And I said, God, oh, my goodness, I have to speak tonight. What are we going to do? Please help me to turn this around and calm down. That's the first thing I did. The second thing I did was I called my sponsor. She was not available. As most of us know, our sponsors aren't always there. So the next thing I did was I called a girlfriend in California. I found somebody at home that would talk to me. <clears throat> and so it doesn't matter if you're here one year or, or 48, 49 years. We always use the program the same way. And I'm just so grateful that I have all these tools that I don't have to suffer alone unless I choose to. <clears throat> 
If you're new here, let me tell you, you are going to change here. That's just a given. You are going to change. And if you don't change and if you're unwilling to change, you will not stay. That's very simple. I've just seen that happen again and again and again. Now, for me, over the years, what I have found is this. I don't make the changes. God makes the changes. There seems to be a misconception about that. All I do is I show up willing, almost like here I am, and I, I surrender. When I give myself humbly to the surrender process of this program, then God can work with me, and God can change me in the ways I want to be changed. I, I came prepared. If I bring it, I don't need it. If I don't have it, I've got a dry mouth, so I came prepared. Uh, I'm one of these people that believe in telling the story, what happened, what it was like, and what it's like now. So I'm going to start with the, the very beginning. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young princess. And this princess lived in a castle with a wicked old witch. And every day the wicked old witch would tell the princess that she was no good, that she would never amount to anything, that she was stupid, she was ugly. This went on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. This princess suffered from a condition called mistaken identity. And things would get so bad for her at times that strangers would ride by the castle and she would turn her back so they wouldn't have to see how ugly she was. I identified with that story because I grew up in active alcoholism. And a lot of those same things happened to me. Um, I'm not someone who's here to blame my mother and father for my childhood. It was what it was. I think they did the very best that they could. And, But I also want to be honest for myself. I think there was a lot of scarring took place during those early years. And, you know, today I'm grateful for it because it was because of the scarring that I, I sought higher ground, and I came to you people, but it took many, many years. My father was the drinker. Uh, Now, I have to tell you, I was a daddy's girl. My father was an educated man. Uh, He was very loving. Uh, He was a lot of wonderful things, and he just happened to have this little drinking problem that really didn't bother me because I wasn't affected. But my mother did have a problem with it, and uh, and she was the other lady that lived at our house, and she's the one I had the problem with. My mother and I were oil and water from the earliest I can remember. We did not get along. I was always in trouble with her. Uh, it, it was just very, very sad. Now, when you come from a family like I do, there's a lot of crazy behavior. There's not a lot of love and a lot of crazy behavior. Uh, my mother and father would go out to the country club on Saturday night uh, to dance or to the Elks Club to dance and drink with their friends. And on a lot of those nights, they would come home and the Saturday night fights would break out. And on many of those nights, my dad would beat my mother up. 
Now, I loved my dad, and I didn't care much for my mother, but I did not like the fact that he beat her up. So she would scream for me to call the police, and here I am at that time, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, calling the police, and they would come to our house, and it didn't matter if it was summer or winter. My dad always seemed to end up on the lawn in his underwear. And uh, when you're young, it's very confusing. It's very embarrassing. Um and, and confusing. Oh my gosh. I did not know what was going on, but I knew it was made me very unhappy. Um, my dad was the Cecil B. DeMille of dads. He was a lot of fun. Uh, we used to do things like at Christmas time go out to cut Christmas trees in places it was illegal to cut Christmas trees down. <laughs> And we'd take picnic lunches, and he always had hot toddies. And, you know, it was just always a lot of fun. To this day, I only remember the fun when it comes to my dad. When I was 13 years old, my dad left home. And when he left home, I blamed my mother for that. I thought if she would have been a more kind, loving, understanding wife, that wouldn't have happened, and he would have stayed with us. So at that time, I made a subconscious pact with myself. If I ever found myself in that position, I would be the understanding, loving wife, and my husband wouldn't have to leave home. It's important that I tell you now that my qualifications for being here are that I am the granddaughter of, the daughter of, the sister of. I have been married to three alcoholics and one normie. That would lead you to believe that there's a little something wrong with Susie and that if it's possible, I am overqualified for this program. (laughs) And so you will believe me if I say, this program works. It really works. Uh, I was an awkward teenager, as was shared. Uh, I... uh, I, I love that Pauline's tall and, and so gracious and so stately. And when I was younger, I didn't want to be tall. I wanted to blend in. And, and as I laughingly say, I am 5'10", and I've been this tall since I was 5. And uh, when you just want to blend in, I did not. So I was awkward and green and backward. I did not start dating until after high school. Uh, my first boyfriend, I lived in California. I... Uh, I was born and raised in Terre Haute. Not many people know that, but it was very brief. I was born and we left. But I I spent most of my years in California, and my first boyfriend was a lifeguard on Venice Beach. And uh, I would see him at the beach during the day, and we dated a few times, and maybe we dated three or four times, and he asked me if I'd move in with him. And I thought about this for five seconds, and I thought that was a good idea. I had graduated from high school. Uh, I was obviously uh, really in charge of knowing what was right for me. And so I moved in with this guy. And uh, every day he would go to the beach, and he would save people at the beach. Then he would come home from work and maybe cook dinner or wash dishes or uh, vacuum or grocery shop or maybe do a load of laundry, a variety of things. And I only had one job. My job was to get a tan. And I did my part. As funny as that sounds, I really was incapable of doing anything else. I came out of this family. Absolutely everything had been done for me. I did not know how to boil water. 
I did not how to know how to do anything. So I needed to be taken care of, and this, this young man did take care of me. Uh, he and another lifeguard were building a, a sailboat. They wanted to sail to uh, Hawaii and the South Pacific. And I tell you this because the other lifeguard had a girlfriend that I thought was a real hot number. Her name was Sharon. She was a natural redhead, all the things that I wanted to be. Uh, Sharon uh, was also tall. Uh, she wore leopard skin dresses with necklines so low they had nothing to do with the neck. <laughs> and I wanted to be like Sharon. Uh, Sharon told me that she thought what I needed was a well-paying job, and so she offered to help me. I was 18 years old, and she got me a job working in a beer bar in Venice, California, I was 18 years old. I had a fake ID. The name she got from me was Vera Brockenoff. <laughs> and that's where I met my first husband. Um, my first husband was an actor. And he worked in this beer bar at night so that he would have his days free to seek acting work. And uh, so... I worked there probably a couple of weeks, and it became very obvious that I was underage. I was pretty green. Um, but we had a lot of sexual tension going on. You, you know what I'm talking about, that sexual tension that happens to young people in heat. <laughs> so one night he said to me, you know, what do you think about coming home with me? And so I thought about it for five seconds. And... Uh, I decided it was a good idea. Now, I was at the bar with the lifeguard's car. So what I did was I took the keys and put them under the seat, and I left the, the car in front of the bar, and I went home to the actor, never to return to Marina Del Rey, which I was now living on the boat, for a toothbrush, clothes, nothing. So you can see I'm really painting a picture of a very unhealthy young woman. Um, I have sponsored through the years a lot of people. I don't know anyone that I've ever worked with and heard a fifth step who's had a crazier younger life than I did. For me, sometimes when I think how lucky I was that I didn't get in more trouble than I did, it's just absolutely amazing. So I had this, uh, I was moved in with the actor, and... Uh, we had a stormy relationship from the very beginning. He... Uh, he was a periodic alcoholic, and I didn't know it at the time, but he would get uh, very irritable and discontent, and he would pick a fight with me, and he'd be gone for the weekend, which he would get drunk, get sober, and come home. I wasn't really sure what that was about, but I knew there was something wrong with him. We had one big fight, and in the meantime, I moved to Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii, once again, with a lifeguard. The lifeguard had sailed to Hawaii, so I went where the grass was greener, and I spent a year in Hawaii uh, living on the boat with him. And when I got island fever, then I decided to come home. And uh, because I had to have a man to take care of me, I hooked up with the, the actor right away. He told me in my absence that he had discovered that he had a drinking problem. Well, finally, we figure out what's, what's wrong with him here. And he told me that he had joined Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, he asked me if I would like to go with him to an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I did. I got to tell you, I loved AA. Oh, my gosh. I loved the laughter. I loved the stories. I just loved the alcoholics. It was just a great place for me. 
So we dated like this for a while, and we went to his sponsor. He had a sponsor and told him we were thinking of getting married. And his sponsor said, well, okay, but I'll make a couple suggestions. First of all, I think you need to wait until he's sober a year and a half. And Susie, I strongly suggest that you go to Al-Anon. And so that is when I came to Al-Anon. I didn't come because I thought I needed to be here. I came to get a hymn. Uh, but God doesn't really care how we get here. It's just important that we get here. As a matter of fact, I, I'm one who now believes that alcoholism was just incidental in getting me here. Uh, I am someone that God planned on being here, and he just threw a through, few things in here to get my attention. Because... This is really my story. This has nothing to do with the alcoholics or my parents. This has everything to do with Susie and and what was wrong with her at the time. Uh, so we got married, and we were married for four years. And during that four years, he did not drink, and I continued to go to Al-Anon. And I love the Al-Anon meetings, too. However, when I first came to Al-Anon, it seemed to me like all the ladies had blue hair. You had a bunch of children. Uh, you had husbands who beat you up. And I was obviously very young. I came in 1969 was when I came uh, to Al-Anon for my first meeting. And I was young, and I thought at that time I was pretty hip and, and cool. And, and you had these 12 steps uh, and traditions and uh, now. Too corny, too corny for me. Good for you, but too corny for me. So I would show up right before the meeting would start, and then I would leave when it was over. So this went on for quite a while. And during those four years, like I said, he never drank. Um, During those four years, he was taking care of me. And the thing that I will always say about my first husband is this, that he is the one who taught me responsibility. He taught me how to boil water. He taught me how to cook. He taught me how to do laundry. He taught me how to get a job and keep a job. He taught me a lot of the things that I did not know how to do. So I will always, always have a soft place in my heart for him. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, he is still sober uh, in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. Um, And he never became a famous actor, you know. After that, uh, we did decide mutually to divorce. And uh, what I did was I moved in with a girlfriend in Culver City. Now, my girlfriend worked for a travel agency, a very prestigious travel agency in Beverly Hills. And so we had the opportunity through her work to fly all over the world. We would fly first class. We would stay at these beautiful hotels for free. It was just an incredible existence. I had two sets of friends. I had my Al-Anon friends, and I had my Rowdy friends. Guess who were my favorites? Uh, a lot of my story is is really how not to do Al-Anon. You know, I like to think that I am a classic example of a slow learner. I learn about as fast as molasses flowing uphill on a cold, cold Fort Wayne day, you know. And and so it took me a lot of time to really get this program. So uh, we had a lot of fun. I, I started getting better and better jobs. I found out that I had some wonderful skills, God-given skills that really uh, worked for me. Um, 
and I dated a lot. It was a surprise to me to find out that guys really liked me, and I, I just had a lot of fun. But after I was into this for a few years, I started to get lonely. And so I, I had to start looking around for someone sick enough for me. The guys I was dating were just a little too healthy. So one day uh, I woke up in the morning, and we had a lot of parties at our house. I woke up in the morning, and as I walked down the hallway towards the kitchen, it was as if there was an aura coming from the kitchen, and I heard this deep voice. And I walked into the kitchen, and there sitting at our kitchen table was a man with the worst hangover, bloodshot eyes I've ever seen. And I literally fell instantly and hopelessly in love. I'm not really sure what this attraction's all about, but I do believe that sick attracts sick. And just like magnets, I found him. He was sick enough for me. And we started dating. I started taking care of him. I started doing all the things that we do for our alcoholics. And I had an Al-Anon sponsor. I went to her and I said, we're getting pretty serious here. And... Uh, we're starting to talk about marriage. And she said to me, you know, Susie, in Al-Anon, we don't give advice. But in your case, I'm going to make an exception. (laughs) And I see that there's a lot of problems here, and I suggest that you break up with this guy, and I would like to see you going to Al-Anon every day. So I thought about that for five seconds, and I got rid of her. (laughs) And uh, because I had to have this man... I was obsessed with him. Alcoholics are obsessed with alcohol, and we Al-Anons are obsessed with the alcoholic. And I had to have this man. He was like my drug of choice. And we did marry, and we had six wonderful weeks, and the rest was sheer hell. Uh, this man uh, was an alcoholic of the worst kind. Uh, the hardest thing for me to talk to you about is the physical violence in that relationship. To stand up here and to tell you that I found myself in a relationship where I used to get slapped around on a regular basis is very embarrassing for me. But I was my mother's daughter, and I can remember on the nights that he wouldn't come home or different things would happen, I would be waiting for him, shaking my my index finger at him and calling him all those names that we call him. And so that first night that he hit me, I really took responsibility for that because I had been in his face. I had been in his face. But after that, it started happening on a, a regular basis. What happened to me was I, I started, I developed this inner rage. Who does he think he is? I will not put up with this. And I started to fight back. Now I grew up with physical violence and it's something I never wanted for myself. I can truly tell you that I am a pacifist. Uh, I don't hit anything. I have a hard time stepping on ants. I, I, I really don't believe in, in harming other living things. Um, but alcoholism is a disease that affects people who don't even have it. I was suffering from alcoholism, and I didn't even have it, the family disease. Uh, on a couple of occasions, what happened, uh, one day we were driving down the street and he took exception to something that I said and he was smoking a cigarette so he reached over and put it out on my, he rubbed it on my sweater. And I, I had a synthetic sweater and you know, they don't go out. It was kind of sparking and all the things that go, were going on and that made me mad. 
And at the next corner, he stopped for a stoplight. So I doubled up my fist, and I punched him in the face as hard as I could. And I also, <laughs> you like that, do you? Um, and I wasn't stupid. I opened the door and ran like hell. <laughs> but for a couple of weeks after that, he had a big scab on his upper and lower lip from where I'd nailed him. But when I looked at that, I did not feel good about that. I thought, oh, my goodness, what's happening to me? What is happening to me? That's what used to go on with my mom and dad. What's going on with me? On another occasion, it was very popular in California. They were having mace classes uh, that you would use, you know, for protection. So I took this class, and at the end of the class, you sign a very formal affidavit in California that you realize that if you use this on anyone other than an assailant, it's a serious felony and you're in trouble. So I signed that and dated it, and I went home and squirted him with it. (laughs) And as he was writhing around on the floor, because the stuff really works, it really, really works. For those of you who are still living with active alcoholics, you might want to make a mental note of that. But once again, I can remember that day very clearly. As he was on the floor in pain, my kneecaps were jumping up and down. Have you ever been so afraid that your kneecaps jump up and down? What a horrible feeling. And mine were jumping up and down that day. Oh, my gosh. All my best thinking had gotten me to this point in my relationship. And uh, it was because all the broken promises the other women, where is the paycheck? Um, The despair and unhappiness was great. My hurt was just boundless. And I was afraid that one day he would pick a fight with me and I would open that kitchen knife drawer and I would take a knife out and I would stab him. That's how crazy I had become inside. That's what living with active alcoholism did for me. It made me crazy. I uh, I tried doing everything I possibly could. I, I read every article in Reader's Digest. I took a class in Fascinating Womanhood. I thought if I meet him at the front door wrapped in saran wrap, maybe that's what our marriage needs. Uh, but in the end, what I finally did was I called my Al-Anon sponsor. And this all took place within a period of about six months. That's how fast it progressed. And I told her I was having a few problems and that I would like to come back to Al-Anon. And she said, please come back. We've been saving your seat. And so I went back with a whole new attitude, a whole new attitude. Within a couple of weeks, um, I was able to go home and tell him that it was unacceptable that he hit me. And if he ever hit me again, I would leave. And because he was alcoholic, a couple of weeks, we had an altercation. He threw tore up our bedroom and threw me up on the master bathroom vanity. And so I, I made good my promise. We learn in Al-Anon that we don't make threats we don't intend to carry out. <clears throat> and so what I did was I packed my bag and I left. And what he did was he went into rehabilitation. Uh, he went to a, a treatment center for 30 days. And uh, he did very well there. Uh, most alcoholics know how to do time well. He was voted most likely to succeed. Uh, And at the end of his 30 days, we met with the counselor, and I told him 
um, that I would come home, providing that he didn't drink and that he didn't hit me. Those were my two very strong boundaries. And he agreed, and he came home. We both came home. And what happened after that was he was a dry drunk. He did not drink. He didn't drink because it was a it was part of what he had to do to stay married to me. He didn't stop drinking for himself. He stopped drinking to save the marriage. And I can tell you now that is not a good reason. That is not a good reason. Uh, I used to think that I could force solutions. I tried everything I could to get him the right sponsor and all those things. And let me just tell you, folks, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. It has to be a personal decision for them. Um, after six months of living with a dry drunk, and that was just really, really terrible, <clears throat> I can remember it was not an unusual situation that he would come home from work so angry, and he would come through the door and he'd say, did you just see that dog? He just pooped on our lawn, and he would go for his rifle, and he's going to sh- blow the dog off the, you know, that's how wacky it was. It was just, it was scary. It was very scary. And uh, so... After I don't know how many months, one night he called me from work and he was bombed out of his mind. And so that is when I decided to leave for good. And I, when that marriage ended, I didn't end the marriage hating him. I loved him very much. But I realized that God's answer for that marriage was no. But that if I wanted to have a better life, that God's answers for me would be yes as long as I would surrender and work for it. And this is when I made my big surrender to Al-Anon. All of a sudden, I now identified. All of a sudden, I needed you people. I needed you people because all my best thinking had gotten me to the end of this sick, sick relationship. And when I look back and realize that I was the common denominator, and husband one and husband two, if you ask them, they would both tell you they were not alcoholic till they met me. So what happened to me was I made my surrender, and uh, I started working the steps. I was probably in Al-Anon about eight or nine years at this time. I had gone to meetings, but I had never worked your program. I had never worked your steps, and now I did. I started working the steps. Excuse me. Sounds like a swallowed with a frog. And I started getting very active. I was in world service. I was in intergroup. I was on convention committees everywhere. I was very, very active. Uh, There's a priest in Los Angeles that describes surrender as when we become willing to do it someone else's way. And up until that time, I had been using all my best thinking. And at this point, I started taking direction from my sponsor. One of the issues that I had was I didn't like it in our meetings when we talked about God. When you talked about God or the Lord or, God forbid, you should mention the word Jesus, the hair would stand up on the back of my neck. This is something that I just didn't want any part of. I wanted no part of it. And uh, mostly because I was fearful and I just didn't get it. My sponsor said to me, Susie, why don't you try doing this? Whether you believe or not, I would like you to get on your knees by your bed and talk to God like you would a friend and say, look, I don't know if you're there or not, but if you are, 
I really would like to have a, a change of attitude about this. I would like to believe, and here I am. And I started doing that, and wouldn't you know, it was almost as if I had been standing on a dime. All I had to do was lift my foot, and there it was. There it was, just that simply. And and I believe that God is too much of a gentleman to come into a life where he isn't wanted. And I did not want him. But when I said, please help me, I want to know you, I want your help, that is when it came to me. And uh, I can't tell you how absolutely wonderful that relationship has been for me. God is the center of everything for me, and I believe every change that's happened in my life has been a gift of God's grace. And, and it's been done through this program as well. <clears throat> so, um, like I said, I was real active. I worked all the steps. Uh, I took a fourth step. I've never heard a fourth and fifth step like mine. Oh, my gosh. I, I, because I was in so much pain, it was so honest. I put everything in there. And I'm forever grateful for that because it, it was very freeing for me to not have that secret bag anymore that I carried over my shoulder. It was all out there. And the funny thing is, is that when you tell all that stuff, it ceases to have power over you. So uh, after a while, I went to my sponsor and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm getting lonely and I would like to start dating. And she said, oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> It's obvious you like alcoholics, and I'd like to suggest we start with a sober one. Uh, I happen to know a guy uh, who's sober nine years in the Pacific Group. Many of you have heard of that in Los Angeles. And uh, why, don't you, why don't you let me fix you up on a blind date? So whatever it took, I said yes. So this guy called me up midweek, made a date for Saturday night. Saturday night, the doorbell rang. I opened the door, and there stood a guy I had never laid eyes on before in my life. And he said, hi, my name is Bill Whiten, and I don't screw on the first date. (laughs) I swear to God, that's what he said. And we didn't. Uh, Bill was one heck of a nice guy. Uh, I started dating Bill, and we did a lot of fun things together. We went, obvious to, obviously, to a lot of AA and Al-Anon meetings. We went to a lot of conferences. Uh, it was just wonderful to be able to talk to him about the things that were important to me, um, my meetings, the steps, my relationship with God. And as you know, it's very hard to talk to those drunks in bars, those astronauts and nuclear physicists about this stuff. You know, but, but Bill was the one that became a, a real fast friend for me. And I did it differently. Bill and I became friends long before we came, became more than that. And uh, I guess we had been dating over a year, and we were coming home from the San Diego uh, convention. And he said to me as we were driving home, what do you think about us getting married? This is a true story. I started hyperventilating. If, if you liked me and I liked you and there was marriage involved, we were both in trouble. Uh, so I, I thought probably an easier, softer way would have been if I just opened the car door and threw myself on the freeway and ended it all. <laughs> but the difference was this. I wasn't hiding anything about Bill. He was as conference-approved, sponsor-approved as you can possibly get. <laughs> 
And so after some discussion, we decided that we would marry. And I did marry uh, Bill on Maui in Hawaii and was just a wonderful, wonderful marriage. Um, through the years, Bill and I, it was just great. Bill never used his hands to do anything but love me. He did not call me four-letter words. Um, we traveled to conferences where we spoke together, AA and Al-Anon pitches, and uh, we did that for many years. Um, and in 1999, um, well, actually 1998, um, Bill started having some health problems. Now, this was unusual. My husband was a career detective with LAPD, and he was a health addict. He was a marathon runner. He ran every other day. Uh, he didn't drink, obviously. He did not smoke. Uh, he uh, ate tomatoes every day because they had antioxidants. He was a vitamin person. He just was very, very healthy. So this was unusual that he was getting sick. So we went from doctor to doctor, and they couldn't figure out anything that was wrong with him. Finally, he went to a uh, doctor friend of his who was in AA and said, you know, I can't figure this out. I, I just am having these, these peculiar things going on. So the doctor said, look, why don't we just send you to an oncologist and have him check you out? So they took a lot of uh, MRIs and CAT scans, and uh, what they found was Bill had a humongous tumor in his chest cavity. And when they found it, he was stage four. And uh, uh, you know what happens with stage four. I was working for Johnson & Johnson at the time, and they gave me a leave of absence to go home to take care of him. And uh, so I was with him the last seven months that he was alive. And I want to tell you that's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done, to be able to just give to someone expecting nothing else in return. And on June 25th, 1999, Bill died. And heaven got a little bit better. And it was tough for me. It was very, very tough. You know, I'd gone through those first two divorces. I didn't like those guys. You know, when you're mad, you can get rid of them. You don't suffer over it. But Bill, Bill was, he was a prince. He was a real keeper. And... Uh, and it was extremely difficult for me, extremely, because I'm someone that uh, through most of my life, uh, I never thought people really loved me. And when I find people who really love me, I don't want to lose them. And Bill was one of these people. He loved me no matter what. And, and for that, I will always be grateful. Uh, as it would be my luck. My sponsor at the time had lost her husband two years before. So between God and my sponsor, I had someone to talk to night and day, night and day. And it, the first year was just very, very rough because I was lost. I, I lived in this little house we had lived in for almost 18 years. And it just was filled with beautiful memories. And uh, I wasn't unhappy. I was just numb. I was just very numb. And I, I functioned. I put one foot in front of the other. And, uh, you know, I, I just was functioning. What can I say? I was just functioning. Uh, about this time, um, I don't know what part of it. 
I got a phone call from this man I used to work for in 1988. He had been my boss, and he had been one of these wonderful bosses that I I just so much enjoyed working with him. He was one who respected women's opinions. He implemented a lot of my ideas. Uh, we just really had a wonderful working relationship. And after he and I both had gone on to other jobs, he would write me letters of recommendation and, and just various things. So we stayed in contact uh, professionally for a lot of years. <coughs> so he said to me, you're not going to believe this, but uh, over the last couple of years, I've gotten a divorce. And uh, um, I come to California on business quite often. And uh, would you be interested in meeting for lunch when I come to California? And I said, sure, um, I'd be interested in meeting for lunch, but that's all I'm interested in. Because at that time, I still felt very married. And so he would come to California on a regular basis, and, and I would meet him for lunch or dinner or whatever. And at some point, it changed. It changed. And uh, it's, it's amazing how God works in our life. And so it turned out that, that Tom lived in Tennessee. He had moved there uh, for work, and uh, so we decided that maybe we would get married. And in 2002... I married for the fourth time. And uh, like I said, sick attracts sick. And a healthy person like Tom would have never been interested in a sick girl that I, like I had been. Um, most of us look for all the answers out here. I am not defined by my level of education or the car I drive or who I'm married to or how many diamonds are on my fingers or any of the things that society thinks is successful. I am defined by who I am inside, what's in my heart. This is the key to the whole program. The reason it's very hard for us to explain Al-Anon to people when we say, I just love Al-Anon, the reason it's so hard is that we have a spiritual heart connection here. It is a heart connection. You cannot use words to explain what happens here because we have x-ray vision into each other's suffering. We have compassion for one another. We have support and love for one another. And that is the miracle of this program. It's a heart program. So so I made the decision, and in 2002, um, I married Tom. I moved to Tennessee. And uh, and it was been one of the best decisions I've ever made. And you know, this is another thing about God. If I, I if I don't trust God, how much am I going to miss? But when I'm in a constant state state of surrender, and I, I'm telling you, this is the way my relationship with God works. I don't care what's going on in my life. It's like I have a big platter, like they deliver dishes at a banquet. This huge big platter, or this, what do you call it, a big tray. And on this tray is everything that I need help with. Uh, maybe my job, my husband, our children, uh, my health. Whatever it is that's going on in my life that is challenging for me is on that platter. I put it on that platter and then I lift it up. That is my job, is to lift it up. I don't need to fix these things for myself. I need to offer them to God. I am someone who believes that it's not that we ask God for too much. I think we ask God for too little. 
He very much wants to be a part of our life. He wants us to bring all those silly, mundane things. And then, after I offer him up, I do the next indicated thing. And the thing that Tom knows, uh, and, and right now I want to introduce my fourth husband to you, my Tom. My husband knows that every challenge that we have, he and I are on our knees and we both pray for God's will and we both pray for God to make it absolutely clear what our next move should be. And I, we, we were in business together. We had a successful bu- building business. We were building custom homes. And then you know what happened to the economy. And a, a couple of things happened, and we had to liquidate. We had a lot of frozen assets, as you can imagine. We had to liquidate. And every day we were very afraid, but we got on our knees, and we just trusted God. And we did the very next right thing, always with integrity. I believe in integrity and honesty in all my affairs. And we did that time and time again, and you would not believe how we landed on our feet. I mean... We landed, it could have been perpetually a very serious problem, and we landed on our feet very, very well. So you tell me God isn't there for me, and I know he's there for you as well. Um, I want to tell you a couple of things. Um, I also, my father got ill, and my father died too. Uh, He died before Bill. Um, But when my dad died, I realized that sooner or later I would lose my mother. And... All my life, I didn't care for her. I didn't care for her. I loved her because she was my mother, but I really didn't care for her. She's not someone I sought her time. I didn't seek time with her. I didn't want to be with her. Um, But at the time, I uh, had spent some time with Mary Pearl, and she shared the story that many of you have heard, that, um, that when she went to her sponsor with the same thing, her sponsor said, Mary Pearl, why don't you try seeing your mother that way God sees your mother? Because God only sees the good. And I had never done that with my mother. And so what I did was I tried to see all the good things about my mother that had always been there. And she was very good to me in a lot of ways. Uh, she wasn't the mother I wanted. She wasn't June Cleaver. Uh, but she did love me in every way that she could. And so for the last year that she was alive, she and I became very close. And this is the thing that I want to tell you about this program of Al-Anon. My relationship with my mother changed because of applying Al-Anon to the relationship. She was the same wicked old witch she had always been. But I changed. I became a different person in that relationship. And so when she died, I was at peace with the fact that I had done everything I could for her in the end and that we had become close in the end. What an amazing program. What an amazing program. Here I have learned how to transform my thinking, not transcend. You know, it bothers me when it says, when we hear in meetings people say, well, I just learned to bite my tongue and keep my mouth shut and uh, to just get over it. Well, to me, that, that just didn't answer anything for me. Stuffing was always my problem. So what I have learned to do with this program is to take an old idea 
and to transform it in my head with the help of my sponsor in meetings. And that has been an incredible thing. I believe that as I see the world, so it is. And the truth is, and I'll tell you this right now, life is a bowl of cherries. The only place it gets messed up is between our ears. We have these negative skewed filters that we filter everything in life. And if if you are someone like I was for years and years and years, very negative, no matter what was going on, doom and gloom. And if that's what you're looking for, that's what you find. And... uh, and this is, I, I, I hear this and I believe this today. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And, and the, the way I use the program today is I don't believe that we rise to our aspirations. I believe that we fall to our level of training. And that's why I like to make sure that I have a solid background, that I've been going to meetings, and that I I really feel like I'm doing everything I can. And I'll tell you, time and time again, I make better and better and better choices. I have never been so happy as I am today. I cannot believe that I've been in the program all this many years, and I now am the little gray-haired lady that I didn't like all those years ago. (laughs) Only... Miss Claire all knows for sure, you know. <laughs> but um, if you're here and you're new, how lucky you are. Those of you who've been here for a while, oh, my God, how lucky are we? Because not everybody finds this program. If you are not willing to change, you will not stay. There are people here that won't be here next year. They won't be here next year. And for me, I am so glad that I kept coming back again and again and again. If you go in your backyard and you plant peas and carrots and corn, that's what God gives you, peas and carrots and corn. He doesn't give you potatoes. So if you come this weekend and you hear all the the healthy wisdom that we share, the experience, strength, and hope, and you take it home and you apply to your life, you will become a healthier person who makes healthier decisions. That's just the way this world works. But if you're someone who goes home and calls your wife four-letter words, beats your children, kicks the dog, and steals from your employer, that's what you will reap. I believe that this is very, very true. I now know because of this program that I am no longer that, that, that girl that lost princes that had mistaken identity. I'm absolutely sure of who I am. And for that, I am forever grateful. And thank you very much for my life.